Toronto's Medical Officer of Health, Dr. Eileen Davila, assuring Torontonians that we've actually learned enough valuable lessons from the 2002-2003 SARS outbreak to be able to fight and contain the coronavirus as needed. Let's welcome in 640 Toronto medical expert, Dr. Brett Belchitz, for more on this. He joins us now here on Global News Radio. Doctor, good afternoon. Good afternoon. Uh, first off, just uh, maybe what is like the number one thing, uh, do you think, uh, Brett, that we learned from SARS back in 2003 that's kind of carried forward with this uh, coronavirus? I think there's, it's hard to isolate one specific thing. I think most importantly, what we recognized is that very good awareness of what is a case, how do we define a case, how do we screen for a case, how do we track all of the people that have come in contact with somebody who has been infected or identified as probably infected, and then all of the steps that we take to make sure that those people who are infected or have come into contact with those who are infected aren't spreading the illness to others. I think we learned a lot about how to do that properly during SARS, and I think most of that has carried over to the present day and I think really serves us well. The other side, you know, you know, I, I think has to be mentioned is just all of the things that we learned around how to protect healthcare workers. When we went into SARS, our healthcare workers were entirely vulnerable. There were very few protections in place to prevent them from getting sick when they were at the front lines of healthcare, diagnosing and treating these infections. And I think we, we really do have many, many more safeguards in place to prevent that from happening this time around. Yeah, just uh, out of interest, what are those uh, safeguards? Because we're certainly concerned about our healthcare workers, our frontline workers, uh, all of us. Uh, is it just uh, better procedures when it comes to being masked up, that sort of thing? It's a combination. Uh, definitely better procedures when it comes to being masked up, having access to personal protective gear that stops you from being exposed to potential infection. Uh, some of the other safeguards that are really important are just better physical spaces that are much more effectively designed to separate patients from uh, caregivers uh, when those patients might be harboring or carrying an infectious uh, illness, and especially in the setting at the front door of a hospital or an emergency room where we really don't know what infectious diseases people might be coming in the door with. We, we've really redesigned a lot of our places of care to separate those unknown patients from the healthcare workers. And, and so all of those types of safeguards and physical space changes have made a big difference for all of us working on the front lines because we kind of know that when we're in the department, anybody that's made it through those front doors has been pretty thoroughly screened. And we know whether or not we need to be putting on things like masks and other types of equipment to protect ourselves from those patients that we're dealing with. One of the other things I've noticed, uh, Brett, over the last uh, week or so is just how good our medical officials, whether it be Dr. Eileen Davila, our medical officer of health, even up to the World Health Organization, there seems to be multiple press conferences, ongoing press conferences that are trying to keep people aware and informed. And I think, you know, obviously uh, with ignorance comes fear. And when you're, you're equipped with some knowledge and you're getting regular updates, I think that really helps when it comes to uh, the state of panic. I would agree with you. I think we've seen a lot of great work done, and on the global level as well as the local level, and we can see the effectiveness of that. If we look at these two confirmed cases of this coronavirus that we've seen in Toronto, what really made the difference was that those individuals that were infected, they understood what it was that they should be concerned about. They understood that there was a crisis unfolding. They knew the steps to take, which were to call for help, but to make sure that those people that were coming to help them were aware that there was a chance that it could be coronavirus, 
which allowed those healthcare workers to take the right precautions. So all of that over-communication has made a huge difference to ensure the safety and well-being of everybody involved and to really keep this contained. Let me ask you, we started the show this afternoon uh, with uh, a bit of the press conference from the World Health Organization. Uh, they're still not ready to declare this uh, a worldwide uh, health emergency. Uh, they're going to look at uh, it again tomorrow, uh, they say. Uh, do you know specifically, uh, you know, is there or is that just a judgment call or is there specific criteria in place for the World Health Organization that uh, has got to be met before they can declare a worldwide emergency? There are uh, some criteria that have to be met. I think for this particular crisis, what they're looking at most closely is whether or not there's evidence that when somebody brings this virus from China to another country, do they then start to cause local spread of the infection in that other country? And up until very recently, I think actually up until today, we had never seen that happen yet with the coronavirus. So every single person who had been infected with the coronavirus in other countries had a travel history to China. Now, what we saw today was the first case of somebody who had not traveled to China picking up this infection from somebody else who had come to where they were. So this was a case, I believe, in Germany. What we're hearing is that there is a worker in Germany whose co-worker had recently traveled, I believe, to Shanghai and picked up coronavirus and then transferred it to this person in Germany. So that's certainly... I think will affect the decision-making, this understanding that, yes, it does seem to be spreading not just in China, but in other countries. But so far, we haven't seen a lot of that happening. So I think if we start to see much more of that happening, there's no question this becomes a global international emergency. If there's very little of that, then we can continue to say, yes, this is a crisis, but more of a regional crisis. Is that the biggest area of concern, what you just detailed in Germany, that sort of thing happening not only in that country, but to elsewhere in the world? Is that what medical officials are really keyed on right now? Absolutely, because once that starts to happen, this becomes much more difficult to control. You know, when we know this is only in China, we can really effectively stop this from spreading by uh, controlling how people travel from China, really heavily screening people who have traveled from that affected area, and we don't really have to worry about too much else. But once we know that anybody who's left that area could expose others in other parts of the world, and then they can expose others, very quickly you get a snowball effect where it becomes very, very much more difficult to track and contain the infection. So if the World Health Organization does in the coming days declare a global health emergency, what does that mean to, to the average person, or what should it mean? Well, to the average person, it doesn't really mean all that much. It's not going to change your day-to-day life very much. But what it does mean is that there are a great deal more resources that can be brought to bear on this crisis. So the World Health Organization, by making that declaration, opens up a lot of extra both manpower and financial resources to actually come out and fight the spread of this, to track the spread of this globally, and to come up with more strategies to deal with this. So it really is much more of a procedural and political declaration that changes the resources more so than, you know, all of a sudden we're going to see a cure or something dramatically different in how we approach the day-to-day of this virus. All right, just finally, and I don't think we can underscore this enough, for those that are listening right now, what is the number one thing, uh, the best thing they can do to protect themselves to ensure that this virus doesn't spread any further? We we keep hearing about hand washing. Is that the number one thing? I'm going to say, first of all, don't panic. Uh, You know, that's number one. I think panic is the worst enemy in any outbreak. It leads people to make irrational decisions and do silly things. But beyond that, I would absolutely agree. Hand washing is first and foremost your best friend. Um, The vast majority of contaminations where people get viruses from others 
actually is not because, you know, they sat next to somebody with the flu and, and directly breathed in, you know, what that person coughed at or sneezed out. Most of the time it's because somebody sneezed on a surface and you went and touched that surface and then you went and touched your face and you got the flu because most of these viruses can live for days on surfaces. We don't know yet with the coronavirus whether or not that's the case, but very much we are aware that if you wash your hands effectively, use hand sanitizer effectively, you greatly reduce it picking up any virus your chance of picking up any virus through this means of, of spread. So you'll do yourselves a lot of favors, not just for coronavirus, but for flu and almost everything else, by being very careful what you touch and by regularly washing your hands. Dr. Brett Belchett, 640 Toronto medical expert. Uh, doctor, thanks for the time as always. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Have a good day.